Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Parikh, and today I have the distinct pleasure to speak with Dr. Amir Masood the co-director of Harford Healthcare's Neurogastroenterology and Motility Center. Dr. Masood, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be here. So today I was hoping to provide some clarity on a relatively new technology to enter the GI realm, EndoFlip. And I, I kind of want to discuss with you in a clinical scenario, how it can be incorporated into our data algorithm for gastroenterology providers. So what is EndoFlip and how does it work? EndoFlip, uh, the flip part, stand, it's not uh, related to what we do to patients. It uh, basically stands for the functional luminal imaging probe. And in a nutshell, it uses uh, impedance, which is electrical resistance, uh, to calculate uh, basically changes that happen in the esophageal diameter. Basically, you have this catheter with these impedance channels along the length of it encased in a very flexible, almost sandwich bag-like balloon. And when we infuse it with different um, volumes of a known concentration of uh, fluid, we're able to make those calculations and see the changes in real time that happen in the esophagus in response to contraction. Oh, wow. So you get, it's all real-time diagnostic data. Exactly. So it basically elicits, once we inflate that balloon up in the esophagus, it elicits a contractile response. And based on the organization, the vigor, uh, and the changes that happen during that contractile response, we're able to tell a lot of important uh, things regarding esophageal peristalsis and function. Great. Uh, so from the patient's perspective, I understand it's, it's not that different than a typical upper endoscopy. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So a patient uh, almost wouldn't know that we did it unless we told them. Uh, it adds nothing uh, other than time to the procedure. There's no additional risk uh, to having the endoflip catheter uh, placed basically once the patient is sedated and after a complete uh, upper esophageal, um, you know, upper, ex uh, excuse me, EGD exam is done, we insert the catheter, do our measurements, remove the catheter, and the procedure is done. So it doesn't really add at all to the experience, the risk, uh, just maybe add, a, you know, five, 10 minutes to the overall length of time. Oh, that was, that was going to be a follow up. So about five, 10 minutes more of anesthesia time and overall procedure time done. Correct. Oh, that's great. So let's go through a clinical scenario to, you know, for my edification, for the edification of our GI and primary care colleagues, uh, hypothetically. So we have a 46 year old female patient with solid food dysphagia. How do you approach this patient? So I think as gastroenterologists, we always think, you know, dysphagia is an alarm feature. These patients need to get the upper endoscopy without delay. Um, now, if there are some reassuring, uh, quote unquote, obviously reassuring factors to that dysphagia, like, okay, this has been going on for several years, no associated weight loss, nothing progressive, no other alarm features, then you can kind of take your time in the, in the workup as far as being a little bit more cerebral uh, about it. But for me, if someone has dysphagia, it's going to trigger an upper endoscopy. And that, in my mind, is an opportunity. So when we're going to do the upper endoscopy, if you don't see anything that stares you in the face saying, okay, this is why the patient has dysphagia, you know, big stricture, a mass, um, you know, uh, other findings that could be very suggestive, 
that's when you would say, okay, maybe we should end up this patient. So it's kind of all done at the same time, kind of one-stop oh. shopping almost. That's great. So, uh, you know, asking my, my follow-up was going to be, when would you go straight to endoflip prior to regular endoscopy? But, you know, that makes sense. So you can, you know, you can talk to your patient and say, Hey, we're going to do the endoscopy. Um, but if we find nothing obvious, you know, we could endoflip right there. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So that's, that, that's interesting. That's different than, you know, what I traditionally do and what many do is when they get to the endos- endoscopic phase, if they see nothing there endoscopically, no stricture, no esophagitis, uh, then we typically just do random biopsies of different levels of the esophagus to look for eosinophilic esophagitis. But what you can offer with endoflip would be one step beyond that as well. Yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of different applications. A lot of people think of endoflip as a device just to look at the EGJ, the esophagogastric junction, basically ruling out achalasia. But over the past five, six years or so, the technology has advanced such that we're able to actually tell a lot about esophageal peristalsis organization and, and obviously if it's disorganized as well. So in my mind, it's always, you know, it's more information. And if I could do a little bit more during the same exam, I've saved the patient time, I've saved the patient another uh, procedure, and I've gotten a lot more information. And additionally, about the EOE, you know, endoflip has been shown also to get some very important information that could be almost analogous to biopsies, which show inflammation. So as we know, when you do a biopsies for EOE, it's almost binary. You're either high or you're not high. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. level of inflammation doesn't really correlate with severity of symptoms. Endoflip has actually been shown to do that. So in patients who have really bad stricturing disease in, uh, uh, in EOE, we know that they have a stiffer esophagus. And we can actually tell that using parameters known as the extensibility plateau by endoflip to see, okay, this is a very stiff esophagus. This is somebody who probably has EOE uh, versus somebody who doesn't. Great. Wow. I, I did not know that. And I'm assuming you can still do the traditional esophageal biopsies either you know, before or after the endoflip probe is placed to, to get the typical histologic confirmation as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, the way I do it is I do the full exam. If I want to take gastric biopsies, I can take them at that time, deflate the stomach, come out, do the endoflip. And then once that is done, then we can start manipulating the esophagus if we need to do a, you know, biopsies or a dilation or whatever. Great. And you, and you mentioned time, patient time. I, I think one of the, you know, this was even before the COVID pandemic. One of the things that, you know, we sometimes struggle with is getting access for patients to get these procedures done in a timely fashion. You know, typically we do an endoscopy and, or an esophagram. Often esophagram is done even prior to the referral to us, but then getting them to traditional high resolution manometry takes some time, takes a few weeks, getting the results of manometry, then the, seeing the patient seeing us back in the office or the phone call follow-up before we then institute some sort of therapy we're typically looking, even in best case scenarios, at about three months. And I, if I'm understanding correctly, with endoflip, there's the theoretical possibility or a possibility that you could make those three months worth of diagnostic information during the initial sentinel endoscopy. Is that correct? A hundred percent. I think time is the biggest factor when it comes to how we try and manage uh, patients with motility disorders. Because like you said, 
I mean, it's not only it's not only the time between, uh, you know, different procedures, it's also time between referrals. Right. So, you know, traditionally, a gastroenterologist may see a patient rule out major causes and then say, OK, you need to be seen by a motility specialist who may order or may or may not order these tests. And that has its own, you know, kind of bouquet of, of delays. So in my mind, if you're able to very quickly at the same time of the initial endoscopy, get as much information as possible, you have a very good chance of not only diagnosing, but also potentially offering a therapy. So I'll give you a quick example. Let's say this 46-year-old patient that we uh, you know, early, presented earlier has findings on endoflip suggestive of achalasia. Um, we can write then and there, and we've done this, uh, right then and there, do a pneumatic dilation, reassess the EGJ right afterwards with an endoflip and see if the parameters have improved. And then in many cases, wake the patient up, say, you have achalasia, that's why you couldn't swallow. And guess what? We also treated it and you should be feeling better. We'll see you in two weeks and you're going to tell us how much better you feel. And that's often the case. Um, so that's obviously a best case scenario where you can come up with a diagnosis, treat it right then and there. Um, but, you know, worst case scenario, you've saved the patient, like you said, several weeks at the very least. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I was going to ask you, and I think you just answered it. So you do have situations, even though in this example, you mentioned the achalasia, the diagnosis, the, the pneumatic dilatation, and then the repeat endoflip. Are there, are there instances where you may be able to do serial endoflips on patients to see how they're responding to therapy? Because oftentimes, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put patients on therapy, you know, usually endoscopic or surgical or medical, and it's not always clear if they're responding because some patients, their symptoms are sporadic. Absolutely. I think that kind of basically hits the nail on the head. I think it's not only a diagnostic tool, it is a tool that aids in management. So one of the things I do, for example, is in patients who have EOE who are being managed by whatever modality, I will bring them in uh, periodically, depending on their symptoms and measure distensibility plateau and see, okay, their esophagus is a little more stretchy, so to speak, than it was before therapy is working, or it's, you know, it's still very stiff, therapy is not working. Uh, you know, uh, as an aside, you know, another application is patients who have undergone endoscopic, even surgical therapies, anything from, you know, peroral endoscopic myotomies to even fund application for reflux, we can assess the efficacy of those procedures by endoflip, in addition to all the other traditional methods. And I think over the past maybe three to five years, a lot of data have been presented showing that endoflip is a very viable and accurate, uh, a way of measuring, uh, uh, that efficacy. No, I mean, again, the more I learn about it, the more I understand it, the more I feel like it has multiple roles in our day-to-day -day GI practice. Now this may be, you know, not a straightforward answer, but in your experience, how's insurance coverage been for the endoflip? So uh, endoflip has its own CPT code and it has been covered for a number of years. There are some caveats. Um, so if you were to do an endoflip and then do a, an esophageal dilation, you can't really bill for the endoflip portion of it. Uh, mm -hmm. the charges are outweighed obviously by the charges of the dilation. So, I see. you know, the conventional, you know, wisdom as well, if it generated a dilation that in itself is enough, um, to justify its cost, but it is a minimal cost. Um, aside from that, if you were to do, um, you know, end of flip and then, um, and then offer, um, you know, like a, uh, a pneumatic dilation, you couldn't, couldn't bill for it. But if you were to dilate, uh, for example, the pylorus based on end of flip measurements, you can actually bill for that. So there are some nuances there. 
um, as far as reimbursement goes, but purely for a, day, a diagnostic outside of the ones where we do esophageal dilation, it's, uh, it's covered by all, as far as I know, most insurances, if not all. And there wouldn't necessarily be another additional patient expense either way. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, very informative. Um, so how do GI providers, primary care providers or patients get access to this neurogastroenterology and motility center at Hartford Healthcare? So we are completely, you know, quote unquote, open for business. We are accepting self-referrals, referrals from primary care, and obviously referrals from uh, gastroenterologists all over the state and country. Um, obviously, they can call our number. They can, uh, you know, uh, visit the website. Um, and uh, like I said, you know, our goal is to get everybody in as soon as possible and get all these tests done as soon as possible because, you know, quality of life issue like swallowing, quality of life issues like, you know, defecatory problems, those things are ones that really can't be delayed. And it's our goal to get it done as soon as possible. Great. Well, Dr. Masood, thank you so much for your time. This is very informative and I'm sure my, our listeners will feel the same way. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.